First uh, Timothy chapter 2 is the assigned portion for today in the Bible in three years. But as Paul's writing to Timothy, uh, he's not breaking for chapters the way that we break them up. And so I want to pull in a little bit of chapter 3 to help us uh, really grasp hold of what Paul is saying in chapter 2. So we're going to start in chapter 3, verse 14 and 15, and then kind of jump back to chapter 2 and uh, walk through what the Lord has for us in that. All right, First Timothy chapter 3, verse 14 and verse 15. These things I write to you, though I hope to come to you shortly. But if I am delayed, I write so that you may know how you ought to conduct yourself in the house of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and ground of the truth. Lord, we thank you for your word, the foundation that it provides for us in our lives. I pray this evening that you would teach us, Lord, your truth regarding your church. Lord, that we would gather together as your children, as your followers, in a way that honors you, in a way that represents you, in a way that is in faithfulness to the instruction that you have provided. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Tonight we'll look at chapter 2 as well as a little bit of chapter 3 here in 1 Timothy, and I've titled the message, Know How to Conduct Yourself in the House of God. Know how to conduct yourself in the house of God. This is important teaching that Paul is providing to Timothy. And we don't have the full context. We don't know exactly all the details that are going on. But based on what Paul is writing to Timothy here, it seems that there is some issues that need to be addressed. The the context of chapter 1 feeds into chapter 2, which then feeds into chapter 3. And it's important that we kind of hold those things together. But as we dig into chapter 2 tonight, boy, is there some sticky issues. Uh, It's one of those times where, you know, if I could skip over it, I would prefer to, uh, because there is some controversy about the things taught here in 1 Timothy chapter 2, as Paul addresses the roles of men and women within the church. And it's controversial because Paul sets limits, and none of us like limits, and so that's an issue that many times uh, we have. But also it's controversial because, well, different types of groups and different types of people over the years, well-meaning believers have developed traditions that are not necessarily uh, the law. We sometimes develop traditions that are looser or stricter than what God actually prescribes. And then also, of course, it's controversial because uh, what Paul says here in this chapter does not mesh well with our culture. And our culture and our society are uh, pretty much against all of Scripture, but uh, they don't come out and say it that way necessarily. Uh, But these hot topics oftentimes uh, will be the center of those issues that are brought up. And so a lot of things, a lot of things. I'm not going to try to answer every question or, you know, deal with everything, but hopefully give us a good sense of what Paul is saying here to help us know how to conduct ourselves in the house of God. Now, again, here in First Timothy chapter 3, Paul tells Timothy, verse 14 and 15, I'm writing these things to you, but I'm hoping to come to you. But in case I'm delayed, in case I don't get to you as soon as I want to get to you, Um, I'm sending this in advance so that you know how to conduct yourself in the house of God. Timothy, you need to know how the church is to operate, how things are to happen. And and the context, again, here is so important. The, The problem that was happening in Ephesus seems to be that there was some bad doctrine that was being taught in a variety of ways by a variety of different people. Paul tells Timothy earlier in the book, 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 3, I left you there in Ephesus so that you can charge people to not teach another doctrine, to make sure that they don't deviate from what you've been taught and the truth of the scriptures. And so, so this is why Paul left Timothy there, and now he's writing this letter to reinforce that and encourage him to hold fast to the doctrine that aligns with the word of God. Now, Paul, I think it's worth considering here in verse 5 of 1 Timothy chapter 1, 
He says the purpose of the commandment is love from a pure heart, from a good conscience, and from sincere faith, from which some have strayed, turning aside to idle talk, desiring to be teachers of the law, understanding neither what they say nor the things which they affirm. So here we get a little bit of a glimpse of what's happening, the problems happening in Ephesus. Paul says, I want you to know all these commandments, these things that I'm laying out for you, the structure that we're providing for the church, it's from love. It's from a pure heart. It is the things that are good for us. God declares to us these things, sets parameters, assigns roles, gives us instruction for conduct because he loves us and because he wants what's best for us. But some within the church at Ephesus were deviating from that. They've strayed from that. And notice what he says in 1 Timothy 1.7. Desiring to be teachers of the law, but understanding neither what they say nor the things which they affirm. And so you have people in Ephesus who are promoting themselves to the role of teacher, but they don't understand what they're talking about. They're promoting themselves to the role of teacher, and, and they sound great, and perhaps they're very gifted and talented in it, but the things that they're saying are inaccurate and don't line up with the doctrine, the truth that God has revealed. And so out of love, Paul is leaving Timothy back there to set things back in order, to bring things back in line. And he's now reinforcing that in this letter to Timothy so that Timothy will implement these things in the church there at Ephesus. In 1 Timothy 1.8 Paul goes on to say, we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. And so he's highlighting here some of the things that they're bringing up, some of the issues. They're misusing the law. They're using the law, but not lawfully. And so they're they're referencing scripture. They're referencing uh, things contained in the word of God. But they're, again, deviating from from the truth that God has revealed in it. Now, Chapter 1 goes from there to Paul just thanking God for his uh, privilege of serving the Lord. I thank God that he's uh, counted me faithful and put me into the ministry, right? And and as Paul is uh, thanking the Lord for the ministry, it comes right after uh, that that idea here that, that, uh, you know, there's other people who are raising themselves up to be teachers. and, And Paul is saying, look, I don't deserve to be a minister, to be an apostle. I don't deserve any of that, uh, but the Lord showed mercy on me. And he, he tells us why in verse 16 of First Timothy chapter 1. He says, For this reason I obtained mercy, that in me first Jesus might show all long suffering as a pattern to those who are going to believe on him for everlasting life. And so Paul says, Look, I didn't bring on this authority. I didn't promote myself and raise myself up to be in this position or this role, this is something that God has done. He gave me mercy so that God's long suffering might be shown to all through me. And so he's making it clear here, there is the role of authority, there is the role of apostleship, there is the role of teacher, but it's not for an individual to choose it. It's God who does it for his own Reasons And then verse 17 is so important. Now to the king, eternal, immortal, invisible, to God who alone is wise, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. The whole point of all of this, Paul's instruction to Timothy, the whole point of this letter to give the conduct for how they're to conduct themselves in the church is so that God is glorified. His wisdom is recognized To him be all honor and glory forever and ever. And so it's a submission to God that we're talking about as we talk about how to conduct ourselves in the house of God here in 1 Timothy chapter 2 and then a little bit into chapter 3 as well. So we're going to look at three points tonight to help us understand how to conduct ourselves in the house of God. Some of the basics, some of the things that God has established for us as a church that we are to do as men and women as we gather Together, And so here's point number one, looking at verses one through seven of chapter two. Everyone pray evangelistically for everyone. Before he gets into distinctions between men and women, he says, everybody, everybody is responsible to pray 
for everybody, and I say evangelistically because you can see that here in the text, there is a focus on the salvation of those who do not know the Lord. Let's read verses 1 through 7 here of First Timothy chapter 2. It says, Therefore, I exhort first of all that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and giving of thanks be made for all men, for kings and all who are in authority, that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and reverence. For this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself a ransom for all to be testified in due time, for which I was appointed a preacher, And an apostle, I am speaking the truth in Christ and not lying, a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. Paul starts out here in verse 1, I exhort first of all. So first of all is not just in sequence here, but he's really giving it first priority. Here's the first priority of church conduct. Prayer. Supplications, prayers, intercessions, and giving of thanks. That there is to be, as we gather together, as we conduct ourselves, there is to be an emphasis on gathering together to seek the Lord. Supplications, prayers, intercessions, these are various words that describe different kinds of prayers. And essentially what Paul is saying here is all kinds of prayer. We are to do all kinds of prayer and to do it with thanksgiving, to be thankful as we approach the Lord, as we gather together. But the emphasis here, I believe, is at the end of verse 1, he says, to be made for all men. Now, not men as in the male gender, but all mankind, all humanity. And the idea here is that when we gather together, we are to be praying for others. We're to be praying for the missionary of the month. We're to be praying for authorities, he says in verse 2, for kings and all who are in authority. We're to be praying for all those who do not know the Lord, all unbelievers. In verse 3 and 4, he emphasizes that. This is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all men to be saved. Why do we gather together and first and foremost have supplications and prayers and intercessions and giving of thanks? Because God desires all to be saved And to come to the knowledge of the truth. And so there's to be an evangelistic prayer uh, in, in our gatherings, in our conduct as a church. There's to be a submission to civic authorities and prayer for them in our gatherings together, in our conduct as a church as well. And Paul says there in regard to that, uh, praying for those in authority, he says that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life and all godliness and reverence, so that that our hearts will be for those in authority, our hearts will be for those who do not know the Lord, that as we gather together, we are to be praying for them. And we often uh, talk about this, I've said it many times, there is no person anywhere on on the face of the planet that is ever to be counted as an enemy from our part, that we are always to be for And to be praying for and to desire God's best for kings, presidents, governors, unbelievers, co-workers, family members. That as we gather together, our hearts would be for people. What is it that God cares about most? People. That's what he cares about. That's why he sent Jesus to die upon the cross for us. That's why Jesus willingly went to the cross. Because people are most important to him. And so we are not to be gathered together as a group against people. We're to be gathered together as a group praying to God for people. And praying that people would come to know the truth. That people would be uh, brought to a, a real fellowship and relationship with the Lord. Now, he goes on in verses 5 through 7 to outline why. Because there's one God and one mediator, the man Jesus Christ. He's the one who ransomed himself. He paid the price for us. Paul says, I was appointed to preach for him. And so that's what I do. 
So there's one God, one mediator, one path to reconciliation with God, one path to fellowship with God and forgiveness. And so we must be praying as we gather together for kings, for authorities, for unbelievers, because God desires for them to be saved. Align our hearts with the Lord is the idea here and pray with prayers, with supplications, with intercessions, and with thanksgiving, praying evangelistically for everyone. Peter tells us in Second Peter chapter 3 that God is not willing that any should perish. And so one of the things that we do as we gather together is we align our hearts with God and we remind each other, yes, you're frustrated with that person, yes, your coworkers bugging you. Yes, your family member is so frustrating and irritating, but we have no enemies. And we join together to pray with all kinds of prayers, with all kinds of supplications, with all kinds of intercessions for one another. Yes, of course, for the things that God wants to do in us, for the things that we want to see God do in the world. Yes, absolutely. But centrally around this idea of the people around us, the people in our world who need to receive the gospel message. And so that's first of all, Paul says, everyone pray evangelistically for everyone. Now, secondly, we're going to move on to verses 8 through 10. Here's point number two. Men and women focus on godly character. So everybody pray evangelistically for everyone all the time. And now as he begins to kind of identify specific things for the guys and the girls, He says the focus that we're to have is on godly character. But he highlights different things for the guys and the girls to help us focus on the things that we need to focus on to have godly character uh, and develop in that. So let's read verses 8 through 10. It says, I desire, therefore, that the men pray everywhere, lifting up holy hands without wrath and doubting. In like manner also themselves in modest apparel with proprietary uh, propriety and moderation not with braided hair or gold or pearls or costly clothing but which is proper for women professing godliness with good works as we gather together how are we to conduct ourselves again paul told timothy i'm writing these things so you know how to conduct yourselves all right so here's what i desire paul says Men are to pray everywhere, lifting up holy hands without wrath and doubting. And so, guys, here's some special instruction just for you from the Apostle Paul. We are to pray everywhere. And so the idea of praying without ceasing, of course, we know Paul taught in Thessalonians. And so we we get that idea. But this idea of praying everywhere probably is more not just a reference to, you know, saying prayers to God, but But the idea here is everywhere where we gather, this is to be the focus and the priority of men. We talk about getting together for church. We talk about getting together for Bible study, right? It it was more typical for the New Testament church to talk about gathering together to pray. Now, they would also do more than pray. They would worship and they would study the doctrine of the apostles and the Old Testament, you know, they, they would conduct services very familiar like, like we do, but they would often refer to it as the time of prayer. And so they would gather together to pray. And so as he talks about that men pray everywhere, he's very likely not just saying just everywhere you are pray, although yes, do that, but also everywhere we gather together. Every time that the church is gathering together, as we talk about the conduct of the church, that men are to come with holy hands. Now, when he says lifting up holy hands, again, I I would suggest he's not talking about a specific posture. He's not saying, men, you need to pray, and when you pray, you need to pray this way, have your body shaped in this fashion, have your hands lifted up in a particular manner, and that is the right way to pray. He's not talking about physical, because he says lifting up holy hands. The whole point here that Paul is saying is, when you come, that you are to be focused on having holy conduct, a godly character. And as we gather together, this is something that men need to be aware of and focused on. 
that we need to devote ourselves to holy living so that we have holy hands to lift up to the Lord as we gather together. Sometimes we try to separate things in our lives where, well, I can live this way and then show up for church and be entirely different. And Paul here is saying that's not what you can do. (laughs) That's not lifting up holy hands. But to be living a holy life from beginning to end, from morning to evening, that, that we would be pursuing holiness unto the Lord so that when we gather together, we can lift up holy hands in prayer. And so lifting up holy hands. But he also says that we are to to do this without wrath, without anger. Why does he say this? Why do we need to be reminded to not be angry? Well, apparently we do. And I think this is something that guys need to allow the Lord to minister to us about. He brings up wrath for a reason, because as we gather together, we need to make sure, we need to keep our hearts clean and free from anger against the Lord and against one another. You remember what Jesus taught in Matthew chapter 5? When you bring your gift to the altar and you suddenly remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift before the altar. Go be reconciled. Go make things right. And then come back and offer your gift. That it's very important that you don't show up at church and gather together to pray, lifting up holy hands, while while there's some outstanding issue between you and somebody else, while you're still harboring wrath or while you've allowed others to uh, be hurt and harmed and that's unresolved. The Lord says, go resolve that. Then come. And offer your gift. Then come and worship. And so there is to be some effort on our part, guys, to come to church, to gather together, to lift up holy hands. So we're pursuing a holy life. But we're also pursuing a life that is in fellowship with those around us. That we're not in a continual state of anger and wrath against others. That we're not walking in you know, broken relationship after broken relationship after broken relationship where there's all of this wrath against us or from us to others, but, but that we are resolving those issues, that we are reconciling, that we are making things right as we seek to gather together. Again, this is godly character. Holy living without wrath and without doubting. Without doubting. Now, immediately, probably your mind goes to when you come before the Lord, you can't have doubts about his existence. And, of course, we we know that. Hebrews tells us that, right? Hebrews 11. Uh, we must believe that he exists, right? And know that he rewards those who diligently seek him. But this word doubting is not so much about, I don't know what I believe. I don't know if the Lord's going to do that. This word doubt really speaks about disputes and contentions. And it's, it's that that. Uh, issues, again, similar to the wrath, it's that, that issues that we can have, the, the confusion and disputes that come from uncertainties and maybe even disputing and contending about uncertainties uh, might be what Paul is alluding to here. And so, so as we get together, he says, men, you are to make an effort. Here's how you're to be. Here's what I desire, that when you come for prayer, that you're able to lift up holy hands that your relationships are reconciled and resolved and you're not stirring up disputes and contentions, you're not causing problems, but you're bringing peace into the fellowship and into the church, the house of God. Well, now he moves on to the ladies. We'll just skip that part and move on, okay? No, verse 9 and 10. In like manner also, notice that, in like manner also, Paul is connecting these two things, that the women adorn themselves in modest apparel, with propriety and moderation, not with braided hair or gold or pearls or costly clothing, but which is proper for women professing godliness with good works. So here Paul says, okay, ladies, when you gather, when you're part of the group and we gather to seek the Lord together, 
you also are to be focused on godly character. And how do you do that? Well, take a look, first of all, at what you're wearing. Modest apparel. To have moderation in what you wear. Now, there's a thousand traps that I could run into talking about this, right? Uh, I'm not the one to set the dress code for the ladies or to define what is modest apparel or what is moderation. I'm not trying to, you know, give you a, a, a church employee handbook, right, and say, okay, here's, you know, skirts must be this long, pants must be this long, actually no pants, only wear dresses, you know. That, that's not what we're getting into. I'm not going to try to do that. Here's the idea, though. What are you wearing and why are you wearing it is the issue at hand. That there is to be a modesty and a moderation that honors the Lord. Notice he says in verse 10, that which is proper for women professing godliness with good works. And so from the outside in and the inside out, there is to be a consistency for you ladies that what you wear represents your desire for godliness, that what you wear and how you conduct yourself and how you uh, dress yourself is consistent with uh, a woman who is professing God and declaring that the need for God, the desire for God, and the, uh, the honor towards God that she wants to give. Pastor Warren Wiersbe talking about this gives a little bit of historical context into Ephesus where Timothy was. He says this, Ephesus was a wealthy commercial city, and some women there competed against each other for attention and popularity. In that day, expensive hairdos arrayed with costly jewelry were an accepted way to get to the top socially. And so Paul admonished the Christian women to be major on the inner person, the true beauty that only Christ can give. He did not forbid the use of nice clothing or ornaments, He urged balance and propriety with the emphasis on modesty and holy character. And so as he talks about not with braided hair or gold pearls or costly clothing, this is not an outright forbidding of you should never brush your hair, you should never you know, wear any kind of jewelry or any kind of makeup. or It's not that at all. He is saying everything is with moderation, that it's not to be overdone. And when, when it's overdone... There's some heart issues, is what Paul is pointing out here. There's some issues where there's a detraction from the profession of godliness, and, and the focus has changed, and so now there is more attention being given so that uh, more attention can be received on an individual rather than on the Lord. And so, ladies, you are to conduct yourselves in a way where your heart is seeking to profess godliness, seeking to honor the Lord, and what you wear expresses that. And of course, there is a lot of ways that that can uh, we can deviate from that. As Paul was explaining here in Ephesus, there can be uh, you know that showing off, and so dressing up to uh, a, a great degree to receive the attention, to uh, rise socially, to uh, have a certain status or position. I don't know why, but in my head, uh, the the whole thought there makes me think of. Um, oh man, I just forgot the name of the movie, but you know the one with the bow and arrow girl. And then uh, Hunger Games. There you go. Yeah, yeah. So that, you know, that society sector one and, you know, all the over the top uh, dressing up and decoration, you know. So so there can be that. And that takes away from the profession of, of godliness. It's a distraction from uh, the expression of faith and the honor to God. But then, of course, there's a completely different way. Also in Ephesus, there was temple prostitution. And so there was a need to make sure that you conducted yourself in a way that was not anywhere near the path of that. And ladies in their society were experiencing newfound freedom, of course, in Christ. And Paul is saying, you need to be careful. Don't go to that extreme. Don't go to that extreme. Find yourself a balance in the middle where you can honor the Lord and profess godliness with good works in the way that you dress, in the way that you conduct yourself, in what you wear. And so men and women... Both are to focus on godly character. Both of us are to focus on what our hearts 
are pursuing and the profession of our faith and the honor of God so that as we gather together, we're not saying, look, I can live how I want to and be angry with everybody and have all kinds of problems just swirling around me. Um, who is the, the peanuts guy who has the dust cloud all around him all the time, right? Like, like that's sometimes how we are. And then we get to church and we just like try to wash our hands real quick and say, you know, thank you, Jesus. I love you. And, uh, we've left this havoc, you know, of, you know, disaster from our wrath, from our disputes and contentions, we are to be pursuing holy lives so that as we gather together, we can lift up holy hands, making reconciliation, making things right, to honor the Lord and to be professing godliness to him and to all the world around us. And ladies, in the way that you dress, in the way that you put yourself together, you are to do the same. Don't overdo it one way or the other way. But make sure that you are pursuing godliness, that you are pursuing uh, an honor and a glorifying of God in your life, and let that be expressed in what you wear, in how you dress yourself up. And if you need more details than that, you can talk to Jessica after service. All right. Point number three. Moving on to verse 11, and then we're going to extend into chapter 3, verse 7. Reserve teaching authority for qualified men. All right. That was a good service. Have a good evening, everybody. All right. Contention. You ready? Verse 11. Let a woman learn in silence with all submission. And I do not permit a woman to teach or to have authority over a man, but to be in silence. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman being deceived fell into transgression. Nevertheless, she will be saved in childbearing if they continue in faith, love, and holiness with self-control. And then let's read verse 1 of chapter 3. This is a faithful saying. If a man desires the position of a bishop, he desires a good work. So here we go, we get to verse 11, and now, curveball, right? There's a lot of challenging parts to this passage. And I was tempted to just focus on these verses tonight and to uh, try to dive in to great depth and work through that. But the Lord redirected me and so spared you from <laughs> from that. But there is a lot of challenges to these verses. And again, it's it's for a variety of reasons. There are some challenges of interpretation, just without any other issues or background or anything that we might bring to the table. There's there's some challenges to understanding exactly what Paul is saying and and lining that up with uh what what the scriptures teach us. And so we'll we'll see that a little bit primarily in verse 15. That's a challenging one. But there's a lot of challenges to this, again, from traditions that we develop. And there's a lot of challenges to this from the culture and the society that we live in. But let me remind you, the context here, Paul will move on from here to verse 14 and 15 of chapter 3. He's saying, I'm writing so that you know how to conduct yourself in the house of God. And so... First of all, we need to understand the context of this here is focused on the church. And so Paul is not addressing all society and he's not addressing all of life. He's addressing the conduct that takes place within the church. As the church gathers together, when we come to the house of God, he says, let a woman learn in silence with all submission. Now, here it seems like Paul is addressing a situation that we don't know much about. Perhaps similar to what he's addressing in Corinth in 1 Corinthians chapter 14. In 1 Corinthians 14, Paul tells the Corinthians, verse 34 and 35, Let your women keep silent in the churches, for they are not permitted to speak, but they are to be submissive, as the law also says. And if they want to learn something... Let them ask their own husbands at home, for it is shameful for women to speak in church. And so there's been a lot of uh, hard lines taken on this 
concept in these verses over the years. And so the idea that there's not to be a woman's voice heard in church uh, has been held to and taught and is not at all uh, what Paul is talking about here. But you can see with the context in the Corinthians passage, 1 Corinthians 14, that there was a disruption to the service that was happening between the husband and the wife. And so the issue isn't the silence as much as it is the peace. In fact, that word silence here in 1 Timothy 2.11, when it says, let a woman learn in silence with all submission, the word silence is not really the best translation of the word, according to uh, most scholars uh, who study these things. But that silence really is better understood as peaceable. Pastor Warren Wearsby puts it this way. Silence is an unfortunate translation because it gives the impression that believing women are never to open their mouths in the assembly. And all the men said amen. No, just kidding. This is the same word that is translated peaceable in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 2. Did you catch that? When we are to pray for kings and authority so that we can have a peaceable life, that's the same word here. And so what he is highlighting here, what he's talking about is not that there is absolute silence, but that there is peace. And so, again, we don't understand exactly the situation, but it's possible, like in Corinth, there was disruption happening to the service and there was not peace. And so Paul is saying, look, the the ladies need to be part of the service. And, And we don't really appreciate that all that much today, right? But in their culture, in the Greek culture, in the Roman culture, it wasn't normal for women to learn along with men. That that was not typical. It, it was more typical in Jewish culture, but not in the rest of the world, not in the rest of society. And so Paul is saying here, no, no, listen, the ladies need to be part of the gathering. The ladies are part of the church, but also ladies, you need to understand that there's a responsibility you have to keep the peace and to not disrupt what is going on, that that you would learn with peaceableness and all submission, that there is to be a submission to the authority of the church, of uh, those that God has placed in the roles of authority within the congregation. Now, that doesn't mean that the men are not to be in submission to those who God has placed in authority, right? But again, Paul's addressing a situation here in Ephesus, so he's highlighting the ladies because it seems like there was a problem, that there was some disruptions that were happening as uh, as ladies were uh, sitting in the service, but not peaceably. And so there was contentions, there was disruptions, there was distractions, and Paul here is correcting that. And so let a woman learn in peacefulness, with submission to the structure, to the authority, to the church that God has established. Now, part two of that, he goes on into verse 12. And I do not permit, he says, a woman to teach or to have authority over a man, but to be in silence. And so there is to be that submission to the authority, the structure that God has established in the church. And Paul here is establishing the woman is not to be that authority within the church, that she is not to teach or have authority over a man. And there's a thousand things I want to talk about here, <laughs> but I'm not going to get into all of it. But but as Paul talks about teaching or having authority, don't think about it as like two separate things. It's teaching authority, and that's why I worded the point this way. Reserve teaching authority for qualified men. That it's not teaching, comma, new subject, authority. But it's that position, that role of authority that includes the teaching of doctrine to the church. And this is why I think it's so important to see the context as it flows into chapter 3, verse 1. So look at verse 1 again of chapter 3. This is a faithful saying. If a man desires the position of a bishop, he desires a good work. So just read verse 12. And then read verse 1. I do not permit a woman to teach or have authority over a man, but to be in silence. This is a faithful saying. If a man desires a position of a bishop, he desires a good work. 
so here Paul is clearly defining the roles and saying, okay, there is the role of a bishop. It means overseer. It's one who has oversight, authority, and responsibility within the church. And if a man desires that, it's a good work. It's a good thing to desire. And so uh, it is something that uh, God might call him to. And so it's a good thing. If he desires it, great. That's a good work. But what Paul is saying here is, I don't permit a woman to have that position. That position of bishop or overseer is reserved for men who are qualified. Now, not just any man and not every man, you know, fits this. He goes on to list the qualities and qualifications of this kind of man who can fill this role. Let's read verse 2 of chapter 3 to get a little taste of that. He says, A bishop then must be blameless, the husband of one wife, temperate, sober-minded, of good behavior, hospitable, able to teach. Why do you think he threw that one in? Because, well, this is the person who is to be the teaching authority within the fellowship. This is the one who is to have that responsibility. And so, well, if you have the responsibility of teaching the church, providing the direction and instruction and doctrine for the church, well, this person needs to be able to teach. And so this is what Paul is talking about. This role of bishop must be blameless. Notice husband of one wife. And so specifying, again, the male leadership that God has established. We understand this in the home. It's also a contentious thing and people fight against it. But it is the truth presented in the scriptures. In the home, there is a structure that God has provided, an order uh, to the authority that he has established. And the order is not a statement of value or quality or capability or status or relationship to God or anything like that. The order is just the order. The order is... What God has said. And in submission to God, we are to follow the order that he has prescribed. That's regardless of whether or not we're really excited about it. And regardless of whether or not society is really excited about it. Regardless of whether or not our traditions uh, fit with it. But that we submit ourselves to what God has clearly outlined in his word. And so there is... Roles within the church, there's limitations to those roles, but they're not as limiting as we might think. And so I want to just walk through this briefly with you. This is a little um, chart I put together to try to help highlight uh, some of the things that are available for men and women within the body of Christ. And so throughout the scripture, we can see clearly the opportunity to serve, to serve God, to serve one another is something that both men and women are instructed to do. And uh, the opportunity is made for us to serve in that way. The responsibility and the call to pray, uh, that is something as well that is uh, available both to men and to women. And so we are all called to pray and we are called to lift up holy hands. We are called to pray for our kings and our authorities. We're called to pray for unbelievers. We're called to present our requests before the Lord. It is something that we all have responsibility for and opportunity to. The exercising of spiritual gifts. This is an important one, uh, including gifts like prophecy and tongues and interpretation of tongues. Uh, these gifts are gifts that God gives, the Holy Spirit gives, both to men and to women. And so the exercising of those gifts uh, is encouraged and we're instructed to do so. And we have examples of both men and women uh, exercising spiritual gifts in the New Testament and then uh, also some in the Old Testament. To disciple, to train up in a more personal uh fashion in a more personal setting is something that both men and women are charged with and and uh, uh, given opportunity to do there. The example there in Acts is the example of Priscilla and Aquila, husband and wife team, who helped disciple Apollos, great man of God, who had 
uh, gifting and was bold in his teaching of the word, but he didn't know that much. And so it tells us that Priscilla and Aquila uh, took him under their wings and taught him the whole counsel of God. Now, it's interesting because the way that it's structured in Acts kind of implies that Priscilla is involved in the teaching of Apollos, and not just that, but she might have even been kind of the primary one helping Apollos understand uh, the truth more fully. Now, that's one you're going to wrestle with, and other people will wrestle with and fight against, but you can look at the passage and wrestle with that on your own time. All right. Uh, to teach the same gender. So that one's a no-brainer. I don't think anybody fights that one. Uh, men are instructed to and encouraged to teach men, and ladies are encouraged and instructed to teach ladies uh, within the church as well. The final one here, though, is the kicker, and this is what Paul is addressing here. The position of teaching and leading the church as a whole, this one is what Paul is addressing, and he's saying, if a man desires this role, it's a good work. There's qualities and qualifications that have to be met, But Paul says, I do not permit ladies to take this role of overseer and uh, the guidance of the church, the uh, oversight of the church. And so uh, those are some things that you can kind of walk through and and, uh, read through and pray through if you want to, if that helps you uh, work through these things a little bit. I would encourage you to do that. But again, there's some challenges to considering these things. Because I can present a chart like that, and it looks nice and clear. And so it seems like, well, we've got it all figured out. We've got it all together, and there should be no problems. Uh, but there's, there's more to the story, and there's some things that we could discuss beyond those things. Okay. Hot topic right now, church culture. You know, can women be pastors, right? You look at the chart, you say, no, absolutely not. But I would wrestle with that a little bit. Now, I'm not suggesting that women can have that lead role. That's, from my view, clear. First Timothy chapter 2 and 3, that's what Paul is saying. But I wonder sometimes, do we allow women missionaries? What's a missionary and what's a pastor? How, how are those roles defined? Uh, change the picture. Uh, sometimes I like, just to be silly, and I know it's silly, but... You know, it's like we also don't allow women Jedi. Did you know that? We don't allow ladies to be Jedi in the church. Um, it's a made-up thing. The word pastor, it means different things at different times throughout history. It's not used the way that we use it in the scriptures. It's something that we've defined and is part of our tradition. And that's where tradition, I think, sometimes uh, challenges us, but we don't know we're being challenged by it. And so I, I would encourage you in this. I'm not suggesting that, you know, there is to be a uh, complete radical upturning of everything that we've always done. I-, I think within the body of Christ, there is a lot of room for us to choose a style of ministry, a philosophy of ministry, and to walk in that. And so we have some tradition that we walk in accordingly. But we need to be careful that those traditions, this is our preference, perhaps we like to approach things this way, and so uh, we walk in this way, but, but that our traditions are not to be taught as doctrine. I would say it this way. Women pastors are not something worth dividing over. They're not something to fight about. They're not something to be contentious about. You know, there's many churches who operate differently in the gifts of the Spirit, right? And we would say the same thing about that. It's not our preference, and we don't believe it fits in with the biblical model that we're given. At the same time, we don't have to fight about that. And we can be brothers, and we can be sisters, and we can be brethren, right? We can love one another. We can fellowship with one another to a certain extent where we're comfortable, right? We can benefit. We can uh, read their commentaries, and they can read ours. We can receive from one another. There's all kinds of things that that we can benefit from in maintaining the fellowship. And it's not just that that's a hard issue. That's a major, I would suggest there's room for us to disagree. And there's a lot of nuance. You know, Pastor Chuck had uh, Corey Ten Boom share at Costa Mesa on a Sunday morning. And people, some people flipped out. 
it's just like, you know, quoting First Timothy 2 and 3, this should never happen. I wouldn't fight against Pastor Chuck on that, not just because he's Pastor Chuck. But this word here, when Paul says, verse 12 of chapter 2, I do not permit a woman to teach or have authority over a man, the, there's, there's some questions that we can ask about that because the word teach and to have authority, they're, they're verbs in the present tense. And so the idea here, uh, kind of literally being expressed, is that ongoing, persistent, continual teaching and authority that is being exercised. And so that's something to consider, that there is a difference between a ongoing thing and a position and a role that is kind of a, a permanent status as opposed to occasions and opportunities. Uh, sometimes in our traditions, people will say things like, well, no, no, it's okay. Women can teach in mixed company, but just not on a Sunday. And I wrestle with that a little bit, too, because I'm like, okay, but where does that where does it say that, you know? And so, so sometimes we, we make these hard lines that I would suggest are not always hard lines in the scriptures. And we need to be careful. Again, we could choose that. If that's what we want to choose, we could walk in those things. We have that freedom and that liberty in Christ. But at the same time, we have to be careful that now we're not trying to force our preference on other people and breaking fellowship and fighting against and... You know, now we're dividing the body of Christ because we see this issue differently. Now, some of the pushback that will come is, yeah, but in our culture, there is this rebellion against male authority, against the order that God has prescribed. And so we have to fight against that culture by sticking to this more rigid thing. And so they have an agenda, right? And, and okay, sure. But at the same time, we have to be careful that we don't try to make something a law that God hasn't made a law. And just because there's an attack on it doesn't mean that we get to make it a law and defend against it. We can defend against it in our preferences and our desires and in our practices. But at the same time, our heart is always to be going back to the beginning of chapter 2, prayer. There is no enemies. Prayer for those in authority, prayer for those unbelievers Pray for those who get this passage wrong and practice it in a way that we disagree with, that there's still those that we are to love and to care for. Did I get myself in enough trouble yet? Should I keep going? Okay. Verse 13. For Adam was formed first, then Eve, and Adam was not deceived, but the woman being deceived fell into transgression. And so Paul, as he's addressing this, he takes it back to the beginning. He's saying, look, this is the order that God has prescribed. Again, not the statement of value or the statement of capability or quality. This is the sequence. Adam was formed first and then Eve. And so that's how God's established it. Within the home, the husband is to be the head of the home and the wife is to be submitted to the husband. There is that order just as uh the the Lord is submitted to the Father, just as the church is submitted to the Lord. There is to be that order, that sequence. And so Adam was first, and then Eve in sequence, chronologically testifying and declaring, here's God's order that he has set. And so Paul applies that to the church and says, this is the order, not, again, a statement of value or capability, but it's the order. But then verse 14 troubles some people, because Adam was not deceived, but the woman being deceived fell into transgression. And so sometimes this can be taken to say women are more easily deceived. And you can argue that if you would like to. Um, but I think Paul's point here is not that. He's not trying to say women are weaker in this way. They're more susceptible to deception. And that's why they can't have this role. His, his point here is the connection to Adam. Adam was not deceived. The woman being deceived fell into transgression. Now walk through the scriptures about the fall and all the things that happen after it. The Lord never lays the blame and holds the account to Eve. It's always to Adam. What Paul here is highlighting is, look, from the very beginning, the Lord said this was Adam's fault. Because it's the order that he created. He put Adam there in authority over Eve. She was tricked. She was deceived. 
Adam was not. He chose and violated his position that God had given to him. He violated his responsibility to protect Eve, and he violated his responsibility to obey God. And so Adam is responsible and accountable for what happened there in the garden. And what Paul is saying here is in a similar way, God appoints a man to lead a congregation, and that person is responsible for that congregation, for that gathering of believers that the Lord brings together. Verse 15, Nevertheless, she will be saved in childbearing if they continue in faith, love, and holiness with self-control. Now this one is the most challenging verse of them all uh, because there's a lot of different ideas about what it could mean and it's not exactly clear and you don't have a lot of uh, collaborating scriptures to compare it to. So the theories run down basically kind of something like this. She will be saved in childbearing is a reference to uh, that the woman not pursuing that position of leadership within the church will find fulfillment in life and find uh, you know her purpose in life in raising children and uh, pouring herself into the home into raising up uh, children who love the Lord who know the Lord and so that is you know her purpose and so that is one way to take this another way which maybe uh, you can hold on to or might make more sense to you is um, nevertheless she she shall be saved in and in the Greek there is a definite article there in the childbearing perhaps as a reference to the birth of Jesus the you know the main thing so connecting it back to the woman was deceived she fell into transgression but here's how the Lord orchestrated deliverance for all mankind it was going to come through the woman. And so she is saved in the sense of preserved throughout all history because, you know, man can't just get rid of her and say, you know, we're done with you. You were deceived. We never want to see you again. Uh, but but that man needs woman because it was through woman that God brought the Savior. And so there was this permanent tying together of the man and the woman, and, and that was what brought about the salvation as uh, Mary gave birth to Jesus. And so that's another strong possibility. There's another dozen or so (laughs) ideas about what this could mean. But again, we don't have a lot of collaborating verses, so I'm not going to chase that rabbit trail down and just confuse us all. Um, Let's go back to the point. Reserve teaching authority for qualified men. This is the thrust of what Paul is saying here, that... When it comes to church conduct, there is roles and responsibilities. The role for everyone is to pray. Supplications, prayers, intercessions with thanksgiving. We are to be a people who pray, who seek the Lord. We don't gather together to just have good conversations, to just you know have some fun. We gather together to seek the Lord, to know the Lord, and to be seeking his will and his salvation for the lost. As we gather together, men and women, we're to focus on godly character. It's not a show that we put on for each other. It's not something we're trying to elevate ourselves or focus on ourselves. It's not something where we can live a completely different life outside of the church and then come to church and have good fellowship. No, but we are to focus our hearts and our minds on the things of the Lord and make sure that we have godly character so that as we gather together, it is in holiness and in honor to the Lord. And then finally, reserve teaching authority for qualified men. It's not that men are more qualified, but it's just the order that God has set. And so First Timothy chapter 2 and 3 outlines that the role being described here is the role of overseer, bishop, authority. Uh, sometimes that fits with the label pastor. Sometimes it doesn't. There's, you know, some room for discussion about those things. But again, that position that role of authority of the general church over the uh, gathering of the saints as a whole. Paul says that role is reserved for men. Guys, if you want it, it's a good thing. You need to seek to lift up holy hands in prayer and have a godly life and there's qualities to meet, but it's a good work. You need to be able to teach. So work on that. Work on your character. 
ladies, work on your godliness and your character. Work on uh, receiving from those that God has appointed within the church with peacefulness and keeping the peace. And it's our responsibility collectively to pray and to develop our godliness in our lives. Lord, we thank you for your word, even though it's challenging sometimes. And Lord, there's lots of things that we can wrestle with and have questions about, but you have all the answers and you don't mind us wrestling with them or asking questions. And so uh, help us, Lord, to not take these things and walk away frustrated or angry or confused, but Lord, help us to take these things, even if we're frustrated or angry or confused, and bring them to you. And God, would you bring clarity to our hearts, Lord, that we might see that the command is from love, that you orchestrate these things and that you establish these structures for our good, for our benefit, because we need it the most and it's beneficial for us. And so, Lord, may we submit to your authority, help us to be godly men and women, not just as we gather together, but in our whole lives. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.